Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. We're talking about hypercars. Um, primarily because in the last couple of weeks, Andrew has been driving two of them, two of the most sort of exciting hypercars of 2020. Um, and it was irresistible, really, to set aside an episode of the podcast to these most incredible machines. Um, and there is a little bit of housekeeping to do before we get stuck in, Andrew, because one of the cars you've been driving is the Ferrari SF90 Stradale. And it's you know, it's such an obvious question. We have to ask it now. Is that actually a hypercar? How do we define these things? It's, I mean, people will be arguing about, first of all, hello, everybody. Secondly, um, <laughs> people will be arguing about these. Um, you know, the term supercar um, popped up. I think it, people, it started to sort of turn up in magazines uh, in the late 70s, early 80s certainly long after what we would now recognise as a supercar came into existence. And, you know, we're still having arguments about what is a supercar. Um, so whatever I say now uh, is just what I think today. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, that somebody else won't think something else or indeed that I won't think something else tomorrow or at some stage in the future. But oh, hypercar, I mean, you kind of know one when you see one, don't you? Uh, I mean, in the past, certainly up until the SF90, which is a bit of a rule breaker, um, I mean, I think you could have said that they are very limited editions, very, very uh, special, extremely expensive cars uh, with a level of power and performance that you just can't get any other way. Um, and I mean, I think the term came into common usage, didn't it, uh, in sort of 2013 uh, with the 918 Spider and with the LaFerrari uh, and with the McLaren P1. Uh, and I think... You know, all of those tick all those boxes, don't they? They're very special, very limited edition, ultra high performance. Um, SF90, obviously ultra high performance. It has a thousand horsepower, for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> how so can it not be a hypercar ha- with that? So how can it not be? How could you have a hypercar with a thousand horse? Sorry, how could you have a car with a thousand horsepower and it not be a hypercar? But, 
you know, it's at the same time, I was about to say it's it's cheap. <laughs> it costs £376,000 before you start putting any extras on it. And, you know, the extras is, you know, an entire other conversation. Um, but, you know, that's still, you know, a lot less than half that you would have paid even at the time for any one of those other you know, hypercars. And it's a standard production car. Ferrari will make as many as they can sell. Um, is it a hypercar? No. There you go. Uh, and I've literally, I've, I've reached that. I, I, I've reached that. I mean, I, I kind of thought when I was driving it that it was. Um, it's goodness knows it's got the performance of one. Um, but no, I would say that it is the ultimate, uh, in one respect at least, uh, supercar. I think to me, a hypercar still means something different, um, and I think it means limited production numbers, and I think it means crazy money. That doesn't mean for a moment that it couldn't be as good as a hypercar or indeed preferable to a hypercar but I, mean, I, I think in my sort of slightly traditional mind I think the term hypercar should still be reserved for the sort of the exceptions to the rules not mainstream product and however crazy the SF90 is it is still a mainstream product at least for by Ferrari standards. Okay, so we're sort of stretching our own definition by <laughs> by referring to this as a podcast about hypercars, but I think that's fair enough, isn't it? Partly because the, the, the other car that we're going to talk about over the next 50 minutes or so is the McLaren Speedtail. And if there's any doubt as to whether or not that's a, a hypercar, well, there, just, there can't be any, can there? No, there, there is no doubt. I mean, I think the SF90, I think of it as... You know, as about one of those ministers that goes that's, that's allowed to attend cabinet without being in the cabinet, and it just sort of sits at the back of the room and keeps quiet. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of there, um, but it's not at the same time. Uh, that's how I justify it. So that's that's and the only reason I need to justify it is otherwise, what are we doing talking about it in a hypercar podcast? Um, as for the speed table, of course, you know, two point one million pounds. Um, before you spend anything on it and as you as i was told when i drove it um you can spend a hundred thousand pounds just on a paint job for it um obviously 106 cars built um same number of cars as as the mclaren f1 now there there is a big difference there are two big differences firstly mclaren never intended to make just 106 f1s um it was it turned up at the wrong time. Uh, the global economy was in a bad way, and they just couldn't make any more. And secondly, that F1 number includes, you know, a large number of racing cars, and obviously the Speedtail is a road car only. Uh, I think the other thing uh, we should say about the Speedtail, um, and I, you know, if this appears to be blowing our own trumpets, then I'm not probably as sorry about that as I should be. Um, but you know, other than our mate um, Christopher Harris, who drove one a while back. Um, on a track for Top Gear. Nobody else has got near the Speedtail. Um, I am the first person, I believe, first journalist to drive a Speedtail on a public road. Um, and yeah, I mean, and, 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 and I know that DN was, you know, a, a, a sizable chunk of the reason that, um, that I got to do that. So, um, you know. That's really was, good, isn't it? That's great. Yeah, it is. It is. I was, I, I, I was quite pleased with that. Um, so, yeah. So I'm sure we'll get, get, get on to talk about um what it was like in a minute yeah so we're, we, we are going to deep dive both of those cars and really learn what they're like to drive um this is entirely self-serving of course because i've not driven either and i just want to know <laughs> we don't even have to put this podcast out this can just be for for my uh, for my this really could just be you and me in a pub <laughs> yeah there we go uh which is sort of the whole point isn't it um of course okay 
All right, well, let's, let's start off with the one that we've both agreed is actually not a hypercar. Um, you, you went to, to Maranello and you drove it around Fiorano. Um, I think at some point, we'd, I, I'd really like to do a separate podcast episode about these factories and these test tracks, these manufacturing test tracks. We'll yeah, do it, we'll be, do it. yeah, absolutely. Because they're, they're such romantic places. Um, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. So I, I think we should begin on the SF90 by reminding ourselves what the, the sort of tech spec looks like, because it's certainly new for Ferrari, but not necessarily new in the supercar world. Well, okay, so uh, yeah, I mean, this is the biggest technological leap Ferrari has, I was about to say, ever made. Was the LaFerrari? No, I think it's bigger than the LaFerrari because that was, you know, quite a conventional car, um, you know, um, with a a hybrid assist system, you know, between the engine and the gearbox, driving the rear wheels only. You know, this is this is Ferrari's first plug-in. It's for Ferrari's first um, mid-engine car that can also drive its front wheels. It can be front-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive, four-wheel drive. I mean, the technology on it is absolutely bamboozling. The interior, I mean, they've got a whole new um, instrument pack for it, which, you know, takes Ferrari from, you know, perennial bottom of the class in that regard to, you know, far out front. It's, it, you know, from that regard, you just get in it and you have this amazing curved screen in front of you, and you think, well, this is going to be utterly bewildering, and you have these sort of haptic touch pads on the steering wheel. But it all works beautifully. So it's, um, you know, it is an extraordinary achievement um, in, in those sorts of terms. It's also the quickest car that they have ever made around Fiorano. Its power-to-weight ratio isn't actually as good as that of a LaFerrari because um, it's, well, we'll get onto its weight in a minute, but all that gubbins up the front means it, it weighs quite a lot and it's not a carbon car. Let's not forget that. This car, despite its cost, despite its 1,000 horsepower, this is not a carbon car. It has a carbon rear bulkhead, um, but uh, like all other mainstream Ferraris, uh, it's monocoque and its bodywork is aluminium. Um, so uh, even so, it's, you know, it's quicker around Fiorano, particularly if you have the Assetto Fiorano pack, which wasn't available to us. Um, which has lots of carbon fiber bits on it, drops the weight quite a lot, um, and also comes with the option of Michelin Pilot Cup 2R tires. Uh, it'll do a 118 around Fiorano, which is, which is pacey. I mean, that is really, really pacey. Um, and, and, and when you drive it, it, do, it doesn't surprise you at all. I mean, the, the, the car's performance is absolutely outrageous. Um, yeah, so not to 60. Can I jump in, jump in very quickly? Um, we're going to absolutely have to guess this. Um, what do you think a LaFerrari would do on those Cup 2R tyres? Because there, there must be a good deal of lap time in there. I think it'd be quicker. Mm. You know, the tyre technology has come on in the last seven years so much. Um, you know, I think it's a second. I think it's a second quicker than a LaFerrari. And, you know, there's got to be a second in, the, in, 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 in those tyres. Um, so I think the LaFerrari would be... I mean, okay, so why is it going to be slower? Um, there is a period in the corner, at the exit of the corner, um, where the LaFerrari would be traction limited um, and obviously at the limit of its lateral adhesion. Um, now, because it has uh, front wheel... Uh, it has an electrically driven front axle, um, the SF90 will always be quicker at that phase of the corner. Once you're actually back in a straight line, I would say, you know, the, uh, the LaFerrari, particularly if you did put it on the same tyres, probably wouldn't be that traction limited. But that's where it's going to lose out. Uh, I don't think it's going to lose out under braking. And I think that once traction is no longer an, an issue, um, 
the LaFerrari I think would be quicker and I suspect its apex speed would probably be at least as high so if I had to guess I'd say they'd be very similar but the LaFerrari might just be a touch quicker but um, you know as you say we have to guess these things. <laughs> well, I enjoyed you speculating on that that was that was fun to listen to <laughs> um okay so let the the tech spec then of the sf90 it's a, a shade under a thousand horsepower um twin turbo v8 at about 750 um horsepower yes exactly and and then three motors yeah yeah one uh one conventional hybrid drive between the engine and the gearbox and then it's got individual front motors um for the front axle uh, and you know, together they provide 220 horsepower uh, and they cannot be fed by the internal combustion engine. So everything that the engine produces goes rearward. Um, so they are entirely additional too. Now they can do incredibly clever things. I mean, just off the scale clever things with torque vectoring and everything else. But you're still looking at putting 750 plus horsepower through the rear wheels of that car. So so, the, so it, what I'm saying is it hasn't got, it's not like a something like a, a Chiron. Um, which can just decide how much power to give to each wheel. Um, it still has to put, you know, the vast majority of its power through the rear wheels. Now, you know, in one regard, that's, that's pretty good news because it means the car and its handling characteristics remains determinedly um, rear wheel drive. Um, but at the other side, you know, it's not going to have that level of absurd traction. But then again, yeah, this is a car which will get to 62 miles an hour from rest in two and a half seconds. So I don't, I don't think anybody's going to be complaining about its ability to get off the line or indeed out of a corner. No. Wow. Um, what does that feel like? Let's, let's put a little bit of context in here. Um, so what else have, we, have you driven recently that's very, very quick off the line? Well, um, it's a you know, car co- that costs around half the price, but a Porsche 911 Turbo S, um, it, launch control on a dry road, I, I just can't imagine ever needing or actually wanting to feel That's more the accelerative G force. That's the thing. It's a horrible experience. <laughs> you know, a nine eleven, a launch control start in a nine eleven Turbo S, a launch control start in a Taycan Turbo S, or any, any of these cars. You know, a, some of the faster Teslas. I don't enjoy it. I just, I, you know, I, I, I guess there's a an academic level on which you can. Even if I'm not even sure I admire is the right word, you can sort of respect the achievement. Um, but there's there's no fun. Uh, it's just a violent. Un- I mean, it's. I haven't done the calculations, but in terms of G, I bet you anything, an SF90 will accelerate harder than most cars can brake. Now, nobody enjoys doing an emergency stop, uh, and and that's what it is. It's that in reverse. Those are the sort of forces that you're being subjected to um and you know I, i'm sure there are some people who find that sort of thing fun i'm sadly i'm not one of them yeah. um yeah i agree but but of course where the performance becomes utterly electrifying is when you're going faster um and yeah and you know once you're sort of out of that initial violent zone between naught and whatever it was should, should be i mean probably something like an sf90 it's still it's still pretty surreal up to about 100 miles an hour and then of course you know you're looking at being on a racetrack um or being somewhere very very quiet where they have some fairly strange rules of the road um because you know these cars and you know you've driven others and the laferrari and that lot they're, they're, they're all the same it's the way they perform at really high speeds at speeds that frankly people don't usually get to that makes them so astonishing um and, and and you know absolutely the sf90 is 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 one of those cars 
So uh, talk us about, you've, you've said a bit about the screens that you've got in front of you. Um, aside from that, does it feel fairly conventional mid-engine Ferrari? Similar sort it of does, UR? It does. And... Yeah, it does. It feels, I mean, you know, it is, again, let us not forget, it is, I don't want to say that it's based on the architecture that, you know, started with the 458, went to the 488 and is now in the F8, but it is ultimately derived from that. I mean, obviously it's been developed and developed and developed and it's a very, you know, you can say as you did, um, in your F8 Spider piece on Drive Nation, that it's you know that is basically the architecture of a ten-year-old 458. You can't say that about this because it does have, um, it has been you know it's got carbon fiber in its construction. It's um, been developed well past that point. But it, actually, to get in and drive around, I think it's one of the th- one of the great things about the car. Um, the the new instrument pack, the new control interface, uh, makes life massively easier. I still wish they wouldn't stick all that stuff on the steering wheel, but um, it's you know it's part of their identity now, and I guess they always will. Um, but it's a car that you can literally you can literally just get in, press the button, fire it up, and drive. Don't have to think about it. Uh, it's really easy, and even things like you know going into reverse because it doesn't have a reverse gear. Uh, it just turns the uh, electric front motors backwards so that's how you reverse and even that is just it's just simplicity itself it's such an easy car to get in and drive and it's really comfortable i mean it rides way better i I, you know i had the f8 um after you uh, the f8 spider and that rides quite well well the sf90 rides better than that and it's quiet too you stick it in top gear and you tootle down you know an autostrada for a bit and you think to yourself well i could just go for days and days and days like this um but of course you can't because uh-huh. i'm sure we'll, i'm sure we'll be getting onto the yes. luggage room in a minute in a minute um but you know, as a thing to operate it's you know it's no it's absolutely no more difficult in fact because of the um the instrumentation and stuff it's a lot easier to drive than than, than any minute mid-engine ferrari of, of my recent experience Okay, so a couple of questions. You did um, mention one. We'll come on to that. But firstly, and a few people asked this um, on Drive Nation, and it, I mean, it's a very, you know, perfectly valid question. But I suspect the answer. Uh, well, you'll tell us um, if, if if the battery dies, can you therefore not reverse out? Yes, I, I, yes. That's one of those questions you kind of wish you'd asked at the press conference, um, which I didn't. So, the, uh, so the absolute honest answer to your question is I don't know. But that said. I do know Ferrari engineers and I know that they are not idiots and I know that they would always um, leave enough juice in the battery for you to be able to do that. You know, they can control the battery to an infinitely small degree and, you know, they're not going to have forgotten that. Um, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I actually ended up doing quite a lot of um, high-speed reversing just for a particular sort of photograph that we were taking. Um, and, yeah, it, 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 it certainly didn't um, wasn't in any way troubled by it. So my answer is, I'm afraid... Um, Unprofessionally, I should know the answer, but I don't. But I would be absolutely gobsmacked if Ferrari hadn't thought about it. They will have done, obviously. I think that's right. Um, and, the, of course, the great thing about the Ferrari SF90 Stradale is that you can have a passenger and you can take a spare pair of shoes. And that's about it. <laughs> I mean, so, the, OK, I, I have two. I have one, not minor, but, what, you know, I, I have the, the, the weight is an issue for me, which we'll get onto in a minute. But to me, the, the, the car's floor, um, and it is such a shame, is you can't go anywhere in it. It's got a 74-litre boot, and there's like a 20-litre ledge behind the seat. Now, you know, that is, the boot is one, I think it is one quarter the size of the boot of an 812 Superfast. You know, you can't, I mean, I'm sure Ferrari will sell you some tailored luggage and that sort of thing, but, you know, 
this is a car, and I can say this because I've driven it and I've spent a day in it, and um, you know, I, I I think I understand it. This is a car in which you would want with your significant other to pack up and push off for a fortnight in and just drive around Europe or drive across America or do proper distances in because it is in those regards, it is such a great car because of the refinement, because of the ride, because it's so easy to operate now. It's just begging to be used. It's a kind of, you know, in those regards, it's a, it's, it's a proper GT. And then you think, well, that's just fantastic. And then you go, well, we'll just take our luggage in here and you go, oh, well, I can't. Well, there must be a big space behind the you know behind the end and there there isn't um and i just i just i just find it really frustrating that they have created a car of such potential which for so many people will go unrealized because you know and, and you know these guys the people who buy these sorts of cars you know of course they're incredibly wealthy but you know these aren't people who you know who buy speed tails for millions and millions who will be able to fly their luggage ahead or send you know james and the range rover ahead i, I don't think uh, maybe some will um, but even even that is a whole different level of organization and expense and faff when you just want to get in that car and drive it. And yeah, um, you know, if you're on your own, then fine. You can stick your bag in the passenger seat and, you know, off you go. But yeah, um, and it's all because they needed to, well, they felt the need to drive that front axle. Um, because obviously if they didn't, then it would have, you know, a nice big boot like an F8 has got or, a, you know, any other of those cars and, you know, you, you, you'd be away. And it's a big price to pay. Yeah, so it's getting you a load of traction, which you may or may not need. Um, it's getting you some clever torque vectoring, um, but it's adding a load of weight um, and it's robbing the car of its usability. It really does sound like a pity. I mean, I say pity because it's it, <laughs> it's never going to impact on my life in any particular way, but it, it seems like it kind of undermines the, the, the utility of the car. Um, <clears throat> Harris posted a, a very funny video onto his Instagram recently. He had his 512TR, um, and you see him pull open the front bonnet and pull out of the storage space under there his folding Brompton bicycle. Um, which you're not going to be doing with a SF90 you, you are not I mean maybe they'll do some really cool Ferrari roof rack or something I don't know but um, uh, yeah you know it's a problem it really is um, and what uh, I, I would like to see is and, and maybe when they replace the F8 which you know isn't going to be in production for that long because the architecture is so old um, and maybe this is the way that they're going to go. Um, maybe you will have a rear drive version with that powertrain or a relation of that powertrain in it, but without the electrically driven front axle. Um, and then that could be amazing. Mm. Yeah. Um, because you could actually go somewhere and do something with it. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's compromised in, in that way. But um, you, you've said it's otherwise very, very comfortable, civilized, refined in normal driving. Absolutely, absolutely. I, get, I bet it in in town you, you can presumably drive it in electric only mode and just scoot. Yeah, through. And, I, and, I, and I did. I mean, it'll do it anyway. It, it just adopts it anyway because it's got. I mean, you obviously got various modes, but if you just leave it in its default hybrid position, if if your speed drops low enough and there's enough um, charge on the battery, it'll just waft around, um, you know, towns um, in complete silence. Um, it's really weird in a Ferrari, um, but but it's good. It's good. It's got I me, mean, you know, and it'll do not a huge distance because it hasn't got an, an, a massive battery in it. But I mean, I think it will genuinely do fifteen miles um, in town, which is usually enough to get in and out. Um, and yeah, I mean, highly commendable. I think that's great. You know, with local emissions, uh, air quality in cities, it is a problem, um, and so. 
I think it's great that there are cars such as this now, um, and they've been around for a little while, you think of the i8, that can just get themselves out of the city, <clears throat> zero emissions, and then fire up the engine and away you go. Um, and I think that there will also be people who appreciate that they can start their car and drive away without upsetting their neighbours, if they have neighbours. Um, it, it seems like a real upside to these cars, although, of course, it comes with um, weight and, uh, you know, much, much less storage space, um, well, as we've discussed. Well, except you don't need an electrically driven front axle to do it. I mean, you know, there have been, you know, any you know, mid-engine hyper goes, look at McLaren P1, you could drive that silently. You, know, you don't yep. need to have the, the electrically driven front. I mean, the electrically driven front axle isn't providing you with electric drive. I mean, they, they choose to do it that way because they can, um, but it doesn't have to. There's no reason at all why... Um, you couldn't just drive the rear wheels alone on electric power from the from 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 the motor at the back, um, as as indeed the P1 did. Very good point. Okay, um, so I think we now need to address the point of weight because we're going to start talking about what it's like to drive on a winding road and a racetrack. Um, what, do we think with fuel in it, with a, a driver, uh, it's seventeen something kilograms? Okay, so the numbers of these, although well, there's only one number. Um, which is 1570 kilograms. Um, and that is a car with every single lightweight option on it, including the Assetto Fiorano pack. Um, and it's a dry weight. Um, now, I, um, when I interviewed the engineers and I asked them what the dry weight of a standard car with no options on it at all would be, and they said that would be about 1670. Now, I don't know what the curb weight of that car would be, but usually speaking, you can add about 100 kilos um, for a standard curb weight. Um, So I think that if you just went and bought a a basic... SF90 um, and stuck it on some scales um, full of uh, all its fluids and everything else to the usual curb weight standards. It would be, it would be, uh, it would be nearer 18 than 17, certainly. Which is, you know, it's, that's a lot of mass, isn't it? Um, it really is, yeah. That's a yeah. chunky thing. It is. It is. Um, and what's it what's it doing for you that's the question um you know there is okay so on the plus side there's no doubt at all that with um with the way that ferrari's engineers have been able to engineer the front axles motors uh, and their ability to actively torque vector um it has a capacity to disguise some of that weight um in the car chassis it doesn't feel as heavy as the numbers suggest that it is um in its steering however i i think it does it has that okay this is ferrari's first mid-engine car with uh, electric power steering um and it has that you know i just like more steering feel and as you know as well as me you get steering feel from having light cars um and you know that is again another thing to make you question whether it's really if you're gaining enough from having that electrically driven front axle to put up with compromises like that. Um, and yeah, uh, and again, it just makes me think how much better a car would be if it didn't have that axle, if it was that much lighter. Um, and, you know, okay, you'd lose a couple of hundred horsepower, but you know, you've been in an F8, and I don't, I don't imagine that you sat there thinking, God, I wish this had another couple of hundred horsepower. I mean, these cars are already so fast. 
Um, I can't help thinking, and I don't know because you know I, I haven't driven obviously you know, a rear-wheel drive SF90, but I can't help thinking that it would be an even better car than it is, and it is an outstandingly good car um, if it were rear drive only. Mm, interesting point. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, okay, so it's a heavy car, and you've suggested that it's, you're you are occasionally aware of that. But how about the rest of the ride handling balance and? Um, you know how adjustable is it on the road? Can you can you still mess around in it like you can in certain other Ferraris? Um, take you know have a bit of fun. Yeah, I mean the, the short answer to your question is 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 yes. And I mean I mean I think the the crowning achievement of the car is uh, is is how well it handles the frankly ridiculous resources that you know that it has under its under its bonnet and in its front axle. I mean. I, I, I have driven. I've been lucky. I've driven a few cars with that sort of power output, but I've, I haven't driven. What, the thing. The, the thing is, is it can be whatever car you want it to be. Yeah. So if you stick it in race mode and you go and drive around Fiorano, you will be so fast um, because it will be so clean. It will be so easy. It'll be so controllable, um, and you know, you, you, it, it is an incredibly forgiving car if you drive it like that. Um, if anybody listening to this knows the Ferrari Manatino system, they'll know that the next step up is what they call CT off, which is basically no traction control. If you drive it like that, um, then the first thing it'll do is scare you because it oversteers. It oversteers pretty much everywhere, um, even through the really quick corners, and you'll be thinking, oh, bloody hell. But it, But what it doesn't do is it never allows it to develop. You have to learn the way... It wants to be driven. And if you keep your foot in, then it'll just go neutral on you and you can power through. And then it's absolutely outrageous. Um, it's, 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 it's amazing because you can drift it around the place. Uh, and yet you've always got that safety net because, you know, you, you know, pretty much as long as you keep your foot in and you're not stupid, uh, it will ultimately pull you straight. Um, and, you know, you can, you know, and I, and I did, you know, you literally run out of opposite lock, um, and your foot is hard down and, Honestly, it, it it looks amazing in a photograph, and you feel like a bloody hero. Hero, but you know nobody else will tell you this. But it's not difficult. You can just if you're on a track and you've got the right sort of corner. <laughs> Andrew, you, uh, you're not supposed to confess that. <laughs> no, but it's not okay. Now, if you go to the next level, ESC off, which is everything off, which is basically just you and the car. Um, that's a different. That's that that is different. Now, the, you you kind of need to think about it a bit then. Um, and the only, if there, if there is any criticism at all, it's that on the road, particularly, if you want to play about with it, um, then if you have it in CT off, which is the mode I choose to drive it around the track in, because it is so forgiving and indulgent and frankly silly, um, it, it, it's not like that on a road, um, because it's always trying to pull you straight, because you're driving at the car in a different way, you're leaving margins, and it's still thinking, oh, okay, he doesn't want to skid, he wants to just come out of this corner quite quickly. So it, so the front, so it'll, it, it will just keep you on the straight and narrow. Um, so you have to have everything off. And if you have everything off, then, then yeah, absolutely, you can muck about with it, you can slide it about. But, you know, you're still dealing with a lot of power, you're dealing with, you know, quite a heavy car, there's momentum in there. Um, and I didn't scare myself in it, uh, and I scare quite easily when doing skids on public roads, um, and I don't really like doing them. In fact, I said to the photographer when I met him out on the road, don't, the good news is I've done all the skiddy stuff at Fiorano, so we don't have to. Uh, and he just wanted to do some normal cornering shots, and I, I did find myself um, sliding it and being quite surprised by how happy I was to do it, and I didn't scare myself, and I never had a moment, but 
you just need to be aware of the forces involved. And I think if you do that, then, um, you know, as, as long as you have some idea what you know, a reasonably good idea of what you're doing behind the wheel, then it'll be fine. And I think you have to, at the same time, think, you know, that is an extraordinary achievement in itself, given, you know, there's a thousand horsepower there and just how wrong it can go uh, and just how Ferrari has refined that chassis to make sure that, you know, you don't have to be a an absolute superhero to tame it, that people who are just, you know, reasonably skilled and reasonably experienced and with a little bit of talent can, you know, can indeed go and slide this thing around on the public road. Mm. In in many ways, that's what I find most remarkable about the modern breed of supercars um, and Ferrari particularly adept at this. They are perfectly usable every day. Um, it's maybe storage space notwithstanding. They are... Uh, they're comfortable, they're reliable, they don't overheat in traffic, all that stuff. But they're also, you can, on track, you can drive them with neatness and precision like a racing driver. And they're incredibly alert and responsive. But then you can also drive them like a hooligan. And you can do that on the road as well, if, you know, if you're prepared to. And, it's, and, it's that... and if, you have, if you have the right environment to do it, I mean, I wouldn't want anyone yeah. to think that I'd be skidding this thing around. You know, if you do it, you know, we have spotters, we have, you know, we know exactly the roads we're on. It's, it, it is all done very, very safely. But yes, you can, absolutely. The theory is there. Um, and it, and, it, and it, it is amazing. And, and what I loved about it, um, and I'm kind of repeating myself a bit here, is that you, you just pick your level. You know, on the Manatino, you can, you know, you can just decide that you're going to be a bit timid today and you have it in sport, or you're going to, you just want to go really fast, um, so you stick it in race, or you want to have fun and you go CT off, or you really want to be challenged and then you go everything off. And you can just choose. You can choose what kind of car you want to drive today. And I, I just love that about it. Ah, that's great. Um, okay, well, you, you gave the, the SF90 a 9 out of 10, um, we have a fairly specific uh, rating system on DN, don't we? Um, we we reserve ten out of ten uh, scores for cars that really advance their game in some way, that break new ground. Um, it, it, certainly for Ferrari, the SF90 breaks new ground, but it's not a ten out of ten for you. Well, that's interesting because you know most cars that we drive can't be a ten out of ten because you know from the get go that they're not going to be game changing cars because they are iterations of stuff that we've already seen. It takes some, you know the only ten out of ten car we've had so far is the Alpine A A110, um, and so it has to have that potential. Now, what it really interested me about the SF90 is I thought it did have the potential to be a ten out of ten car because um, of its spec and because of its price point. Um, and if it weren't for the fact that it is, you know, luggage space seems like such a sort of detail, doesn't it? It's the sort of thing you read down the back of an autocar road test. But it actually means you can't, you know, use the car in the way that you would like to. And that alone it knocks one off. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is a 9 out of 10 car because it is, for the money, it is a new level of not only performance, but uh, access um, to that performance but no it's not a 10 but it is I think it might be the first car I've driven since the A110 which uh, which certainly had the potential to be a 10 out of 10 but not quite there I'm afraid interesting okay well let's move on from the the Ferrari um, we've already spoken a little bit about what it is that makes a hypercar a hypercar um, but uh, I want to ask you now what in your mind was the first hypercar I mean it's a modern phrase so Really, I suppose in that sense, the first hypercar was the 918, the LAF or the, the P1. But if you, we can apply that term retrospectively, can't we? And where, does it, where do you stop as you look back through the, you know, the very fast exotic car lineage? 
Um, I'm going to propose two to you. Um, no, okay. and, uh, there's, only, there's only one in my mind, so I'm, I'm interested to hear what your other one is. Okay. Uh, well, well, I think McLaren F1 um, okay. is probably the one. That's probably where I would stop. Uh, okay. But I also wonder if the F40 deserves um, okay. that, th- that title. Um, because it, you know, it, did, it, it was sort of technologically advanced in its way, particularly with lightweight materials. But it also bust the 200 mile an hour barrier. Yeah, got well, okay. So your your two, my one isn't even one of your two. Um, oh, interesting. It's I mean, although you're you're very close with the F40. Uh, I, I I yeah, I mean, the F1, I can absolutely see the the argument for that because it was it was a completely new level. Um, I, I thought the 288 GTO or the GTO as Ferrari called it when it came out um, in the mid 1980s. On paper, it doesn't look to be you know hugely faster than a Testarossa, although it was in fact in reality wildly faster than a Testarossa. Um, but it had you know it had that limited edition, you know, two hundred and seventy-two cars, I think, um, and it was a different level of performance. So yeah, so so it's if, yeah, I, I would say that, but I probably wouldn't argue long with someone who disagreed and thought it was the F40, because you're right, the F40 did have that 200-mile-an-hour claim, and it genuinely was a 200-mile-an-hour car, and it genuinely was the first 200-mile-an-hour car, because not even the 959 um, mm. got there. Um, but, you know, the 959 itself, you know, very few made. Yeah. Um, amazing technology for the year. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in some regards, not 10 years ahead of its time, but 20 years ahead of its time. Um and then, you know, having said I've only got one, I mean, others keep on now popping into mind. XJ220. Yeah, it's you know, a very pr- good point, isn't it? Pr- you know, did 200, okay, they took the cats off it, but it did 217 miles an hour with Martin Brundle driving it around Fort Stockton, Texas. Um, and that was, you know, that predated the F1 by a couple of years. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of think, because I think the, the limited edition thing really resonates with me. Um, and the GTO was the first sort of main car from a mainstream manufacturer that was built that way. So um, for me, yeah, I guess it's that. But you know, I, I wouldn't argue too much with anybody who thought anything else. Mm, it's interesting. And F40 was kind of born of the 288 GTO, wasn't it? There, there it is was, a lineage yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there was absolutely a lineage there. Um, I mean, I think it was, <laughs> I always like to think of it, Ferrari did the GTO and then Porsche come out with a, with a 959, which absolutely blew the gto off the road and for and, this, and ferrari going well we're not having that um so we better reply um and they did it with you know i would still say probably the greatest ferrari that you know or indeed road car that i've ever driven oh my god well there we go there's a podcast topic all of its own we'll have to come back yeah. to that one at some point yeah well, i could um, do days on the f40 but I won't. <laughs> okay uh all right well we need to get on to the other hypercar that we were going to talk about in this podcast. And this, everybody, is why this episode is a little bit late. There's an embargo connected to this car. Um, so we've had to sit on this episode of the podcast just a little bit longer. Um, hopefully, you'll think that worthwhile. Um, so, <clears throat> Andrew, talk us through the McLaren Speedtail. I'd, I've not been anywhere near one, not sat in one. I don't think I've seen one in the flesh, actually. And... I sort of get it, but I, I, I don't think I really understand what it is that makes the car so special. So I'm hoping now you can enlighten me. Yeah. Um, what makes it? I mean, okay. Point one: the look of the thing. Now, I mean, looks are subjective, and I'm always really careful about talking about the way cars look in in text because you know it's the one thing that 
I, I'm no better judge of than anybody else. Although I would say, particularly with the speed tail, seeing it in the flesh and seeing it moving, it does look completely different. Because when I first saw it in the photographs, I thought, well, that's going to take a bit of getting used to it, and it looks a bit strange. But um, you know, the car that I drove, every time I looked at it, I was just blown away with it. And I, and I was reminded of those sort of late 1960s sports racing Porsches, things like, you know, long tail 908s, which are very sort of cab, cab forward, which have these incredibly long, elegant, flowing tails um, coming up behind them just to try and sort of maximise speed down Mulsanne. Um, and the way the speed tail kind of evokes that, idiom without at the same time in any way looking retro i just find fascinating i find it more than anything else a fascinating car to look at i can never get bored of looking at it because it just it, it has a beauty it has a purpose um it should be retro but it's not uh, i think it is an incredible piece of design um presumably second... when you when you see it particularly on the road it just has unbelievable presence it does it does but it has i mean it's the kind of it's it's the kind of car that you wouldn't just, if you knew there was one around, you wouldn't just cross the road to go and look at it. You'd, you'd, you'd get and you'd drive a distance to have a look at it because it's just not like anything else that's out there. It's not like any other McLaren. I mean, it's half a metre longer than a 720S. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think some people have had some issues with McLaren styling of late, but I think that Rob Melville absolutely nailed the speed tail. So I mean, so, so, the, so that is one point of interest. But I don't really want to dwell on it because, as I say, it's you know, that is just my opinion, and in this regard, my opinion is not no better or worse than anybody else's. Um, central driving position. Uh, I, I, I fear, even now, twenty five odd years after the F one, people still think that's a bit of a gimmick. Um, but it just isn't. You know, it, it, the first. You know, we everyone listening to this will have driven a cart at some stage, and they will all know that you know central driving positions are not something to that feel in any way odd but when you sort of you know blow it up to the size of a car and you're sitting in the middle of it so you're in the middle of the windscreen so the visibility is fabulous you, you're not aware of it because your brain just does it automatically but every time you turn into a corner bit left or right you kind of mentally readjust to the fact that you're depending on which way the corner goes you're a different distance and at a different angle to the apex we don't have that in a center in a, in a, in a center drive car it feels it's the other cars that you then get back into after you've been in a centre drive car that feel odd and awkward and displaced. You get into a speed tail, just as it was with an F1, um, and uh, and it would be the same with a sort of centre steer Land Rover of the 1940s. Well, you know, um, it just feels right. It just feels natural and it feels wonderful, and you just feel completely and utterly at home there in a way that you know is unique. And I can use that word in that context because it is like nothing else out there. And is that central seat very difficult to get into? No, it's not. No. Uh, I mean, there is, the car does have a, a, a sizable packaging problem, which I'll, I'll come on to in a minute. But no, unlike the F1, which was, I mean, I know that there were owners or, uh, who found the F1 uh, difficult to get in and out of, uh, probably because, you know, lots of them were, you know, middle-aged or maybe in late middle-aged. And I'm sure that, you know, a few of them hadn't necessarily kept themselves in the best possible nick. <laughs> Um, the speed tail is not like that at all. You literally, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't look like it, but in reality, you literally just get in the car and you slide across and you don't think about it. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. Um, I'm six foot three, I'm 16 stone and I didn't find it difficult in any way at all. Um, not like I found the F1 difficult when I drove it in my late twenties. Um, so no, so, so, so that is not an issue. The issue is your passengers. 
Yeah, I was, um, going to, I was going to ask. So, did you sit in the, one of the passenger seats? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, um, Andy Palmer, not not obviously the Aston Martin Andy Palmer, but um, the uh, Andy Palmer, who is the sort of chief engineer and head of um, McLaren's ultimate line, which the Speedtail obviously sits in, um, along with the you know the Senna and the P1. Um, he was in the you know he just because I wanted to test it, I got him to sit in the driver's seat, and I sat next to him. Now, Andy is. I mean, he's quite a big bloke, uh, but he's sort of six foot and fairly conventionally built. Um, I'm a bit bigger than that. and um, But he, the thing is, is that if, if the driver has to have the seat all the way back, you need a very slender person in the passenger seat. And I'm anything but, but, but slender. Um, and uh, yeah, there just wasn't enough room for my left shoulder. Um, and so I would have had to um, have sat at an angle which i could have done for a little bit but it wouldn't have been comfortable doing a distance um so you either so if you're a tall driver you either need very slender passengers or the other way around um so yes i think i think that is the car's biggest problem um is you know and and, and owners will have to think very hard um and you know go for a fitting and that's and that's all although having said that they're all sold so you know (laughs) the job's kind of done but um I hope that those very few, sadly, who actually plan to use their speed tails regularly um, are, have sort of thought about that because they might just find it, you know, compromised in the way they'd, they'd not been expecting. That said, um, unlike the SF90, um, it's got an amazing amount of boot space. There's space up the front, there's space in the back. You could go, you know, um, as long as you can, you know, you, you can solve the, the accommodation conundrum, uh, you can go as far as you like for as long as you like because... Um, yeah, you could you, you could get a fortnight's luggage into that without any problem at all. Okay, well, they're quite different to the SF ninety. Um, so, <clears throat> what is the 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 core fundamental idea behind this car? Is it about y- using it to drive from London to the south of France in a hit? Is that basically yeah. what it's all about? Yes, I mean, you know, they, they, they 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 call it a a hyper GT. Um, and, you know, I know that we have in this course of this podcast got, got a bit sort of bogged down in definitions and that sort of thing. But they, they want it to be the ultimate sort of long distance weapon. Now, it does have a fundamental problem insofar as, you know, like every other McLaren of the last 10 years, it still has a twin turbo flat plane crank VA. And if you're making a long distance GT, um, you know, that's not the configuration that you would choose. No one would choose it because, you know, that's basically a race configuration. Um, and the engine sounds quite similar to the engines of other McLaren's, so it's quite hard-edged, it's quite, it's quite angry in its voice. Um, it's not a soothing presence in the car. Now, it's not... OK, this is not a deal-breaker by any means. Um, and it's an observation more than anything else. Um, so, to me, and it's... <laughs> It's a nuance, maybe. It may be even a semantics. I'm not sure. It's a subtle, but to me, significant difference. It's actually a supercar. It's actually a kind of postmodern traditional supercar, if that isn't, you know, massively um, contradicting myself. Because supercars are driving machines. And I think the big surprise, I'll, I'll, I'll come on to this in a bit. I'll do a bit more on this in a minute. But the big surprise to me about the Speedtail was what it's like to drive and the fact that what it's like to drive has almost nothing to do with the level of performance it puts at your disposal. Um, and so, you know, if I think of a you know, Hyper GT, I mean, I could think of a, you know, an Aston Martin DBS or a Bentley Continental GT, and it's just not that kind of car. So to me, although they call it that, um, 
to me, the GT is a bit of a red herring. If you think of it as a supercar, a really traditional supercar in a Ferrari Daytona kind of way, that's the kind of car it is, despite all the technology and all the speed and all the central driving position and all the other stuff. To me, that is, uh, at its essence, the kind of car that it is. And frankly, to me, it's all the better for that. Um, so, you know, I don't have, I have a problem with the definition far more than I do with the car itself. Mm. And I presumably you, you didn't drive it from London to the south of France, but <clears throat> you must have done a few miles. And is it is it more refined and quieter than other McLarens on the motorway, or is it actually still quite a, a sort of resonant machine? It, it, it is more refined, and it's it, it, okay. Okay, what is um, absolutely outstanding about this car is the ride quality, because it's the first McLaren that really has been set up with no intention whatever of it ever going near a racetrack. Um, and that has allowed them to tune the car in a way that, um, you know, previous McLarens have not been able to be tuned because they've always been at the back of the head, back of people's head that even if you're in a, you know, a 12C, um, you know, you might just wander off and go and do a track day in it because, you know, frankly, why wouldn't you? Um, there is no intention that anybody's ever going to go and do a track day in their, in, in their speed tail. And so they've been able to just... Um, really, really hone in on its road car performance. And it's a bit quieter. I mean, certainly if you sit on a motorway, as I've done at 70, 80 miles an hour, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely fine. You're not wafting along. You are aware um, of the engine. And as I discussed, it's not a perfect configuration for its intended role in life. But it's not, you know, you're not sitting there thinking, oh my God, I just wish this thing would shut up. It's not like that at all. It is quieter than other McLarens, but it rides better than other McLarens too. Um, and that is the, you know, that is one of the car's great, great benefits, I think. And does it cut through the air a bit more quietly than other McLarens that try and bend the air to stick them to the ground? It cuts through the air more quietly, definitely. Um, and you can really notice, you know, you don't have to be going super fast, you know, if you, but if you just, um, you know, if you just lift at speed, you know, the car just doesn't slow down like um, other ones do. Um, so it's, actually, it's actually one reason that, you know, given that it is capable of doing, you know, nutty speeds, um, you do need a, a fairly good braking system on the car. Um, but the other thing I, I did want to spend a little bit of time on, um, you know, and I've already... Um, you know, wax lyrical about the Ferrari um, new IP. The McLaren one, the Speedtail one, I mean, goodness, it's just fabulous. It's in many ways, it's the opposite approach of Ferrari because, you know, there's nothing on the Speedtail steering wheel. Um, but what you have is you have in front of you, you have one screen which gives you all your driving data. And on one side, there's another touch screen which gives you all your navigation function. On the other side of that, there is uh, all the entertainment stuff. So you've got no buttons at all. Such buttons as there are, either up in the headlining, uh, for things like the engine start and uh, the windows and the doors, or if you want to open the boot or the bonnet or whatever, then um, they're down by your knees. But you, as you sit in the car and you look at it, it's just screens and it's beautiful. It's just so beautiful and it's just so easy to use. Um, and, you know, uh, the Ferrari system is amazing and I wouldn't say the McLaren one was any better. Um, but if you think about the, I mean, just awful iris system that mclaren's had until not that long ago um and where it is now and i'm sure you know mclaren aren't going to have invested the amount of money they would have invested um for the speed tail um instruments 
for 106 cars. So I'm guessing we will see that uh, in everything they do from now on. And you know that in a way is is in a small way transformative too, um, because it just makes the interior look as beautiful as the exterior, and it's so easy to use, and it's and and, and it's yeah, it's terrific. I remember driving uh, a 720s on track back to back with a Senna, um, and one of the interesting things is that from you know medium speeds maybe 50 60 miles an hour you put your foot down the 720s doesn't feel a great deal less accelerative despite having a bit more weight and a bit less power and that's partly because it it cuts through the air it's more slippery in its shape and presumably that helps the speed tail feel astonishingly fast along with its thousand plus horsepower yeah, well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, you know, the, the problem, um, it's not a problem, actually, because it doesn't bother me. Um, but, you know, some might say there was a problem with the, 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 the rate at which a speed tail will accelerate is governed by the amount of traction it can generate. And it absolutely is. Um, but to me, it's not a problem because it will still accelerate like a complete lunatic. But it probably won't accelerate um, when traction is an issue. Um, you know, any faster than a 720S would because, you know, at that time, you know, the power and the torque of the engine is an irrelevance because you can't transmit it. Um, so it only starts to feel, I mean, fast in an otherworldly sense once, you're below, once you are beyond that point where traction is no longer an issue and once you can start using all of the power. And where it, I can, it differs to the SF. 90 is that this is you know it, it is a considerably lighter car now mclaren like ferrari always quote dry weights um uh, with all lightest bits on it um but this is a sub 1500 kilo car um and it is also incredibly slippery so there's no sense of any drag um as you go faster and once you're up to I have to be a bit op- opaque about this because obviously I only drove it on a public road. Uh, but once, it, once you're up to you know, an interesting speed, um, then, yeah, I mean, okay, put it this way. They quote a 0 to 300k, so 186 mile an hour time of 13 seconds, uh, which is fractionally faster, but nevertheless, fraction, but nevertheless faster than that of a Bugatti Chiron. Despite the fact the speed tail has two wheel drive and a thousand horsepower instead of four wheel drive and 1500 horsepower. So that tells you what you need to know about um, the car's power-to-weight ratio um, and the car's drag at speed, or lack thereof. Uh, it's quicker to a Chiron than a Chiron to 300 Ks, um, which, given that it only has two-thirds of the power, is pretty remarkable, I would say. Wow, <laughs> that, that, is, that is incredible. Okay, so fantastically fast, um, a surprisingly comfortable um, What's it like to drive in a more McLaren-y way? Well, that's the thing. So to me, that's the that's the surprise. And it, I mean, I didn't really understand uh, what kind of car it was going to be. I thought it was going to be one thing because they'd spoken about the Hyper GT, and I thought it was going to be, you know, I knew it'd be comfortable. Um, and but I thought it was going to be a real sort of long distance cruising car. It's not, and that's again why I think it's more of a supercar than a GT. It is a proper driver's car. Wow. Um, it's, you know, in many ways, it's, it might be the nicest McLaren I've driven on a road because that's what it's set up for. Um, and because it does kind of breathe with the road and it is beautifully damped and the steering is fabulous. I mean, they, you know, unlike Ferrari, you know, they haven't gone over to 
electric power steering. It's still hydraulic. Um, and I can just remember getting a good run up uh, one of my favourite roads, uh, which is sort of fast and curving. And just, again, the central driving position is a big part of this. Just being able to place the car um, the way it allows you to. Um, and feeling the feel through the steering and through the chassis. Uh, I can just remember thinking, this is so impressive but more than that it's just so fun it's just such a an exquisite thing to be able to control and command um it was a it wasn't a sort of you know road to damascus type experience because it is ultimately a kind of um next step on from you know stuff that we know the mclaren already does so well um but it was fascinating to me to drive a mclaren that is only set up for the road and just see just how good um a car like that can be and it was it was extraordinary and as i said earlier it's got nothing to do with the fact it has a thousand horsepower (laughs) it does sound like a mighty mighty machine um what's your what's your rating out of 10 for this car it's a nine is it another nine okay it's another nine yeah again (laughs) again yes it had game-changing potential and some and in some regards it does um but you know i can't ignore um the packaging problem I really, really can't ignore the packaging problem. It is um, significant. Um, and, you know, okay, if it had, because, I mean, you know, an F1, okay, the crazy thing is a McLaren F1 25 years ago um, was a better packaged car than the Speed Tailors today in terms of the way three people or even two people um, can be on board. In, in my opinion, at least, I'm sure that McLaren, in fact, I know that McLaren has a different view of this, but, you know, I just report as I find. Uh, and I've been very lucky to have driven an F1 quite recently and been a passenger in an F1 quite recently. So I do know what I'm talking about. Um, so that is, yeah, I think that combined with the fact that, you know, the engine is, is slightly suboptimal um, for this sort of long distance role, um, that, yeah, that knocks one off it. Um, but, you know, if that means we have to wait a little longer for our second 10 star car then you know it doesn't um you know, that doesn't unduly trouble me but uh i mean close really really close um and i'm, I'm also i'm not going to get into the fact well hang on a second you know sf90 is you know three hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds and this is 2.1 million pounds um which it is because you know it, it, it's not 2.1 million pounds for all that can do it. it's 2.1 million pounds because there are only, only going to be 106 of them. Uh, and that's what people are buying. Um, you know, and Ferrari, you know, the, the LaFerrari was over a million pounds, wasn't it? Because there were only going to be, I can't remember how many they said they're going to build, you know, 500 or something. Um, so that's what you're paying for. Um, it's, it's, it's not that you'd expect it to be, you know, four or five times faster or, or whatever. Okay. All right. Well, let's begin to wind this one down. But I, I, I want to ask you one very, very quick question. Um, so with a, a carbon tub and uh, a twin turbo flat plane crank V8. McLaren has given us this Hyper GT in the Speedtail. Um, the Elva is a windscreenless, roofless sort of two-seater. Th- I'm not sure what that is. Um, we've got supercars <laughs> that you could use every day. We've got um, slightly lower-powered supercars in the Sport Series range. Um, we've got a very extreme track car in the road legal track car in the Senna and a track only track car in the Senna GTR all with carbon tubs flat plane crank twin turbo V8s McLaren's been very very creative in you know spinning off um, derivatives from that basic formula but is it a problem now that all of those cars have 
th- those same at their core those same fundamentals does that bother you yes it does yeah i mean yes it does and i think they have to do something different um you know it's, it's not just you know carbon tubs and flat plane crank twin turbo v8s it's rear wheel drive it's seven speed you know semi-auto uh, double clutch gearboxes you could say you know all these things apply to every mclaren that's made over the last 10 years and mclaren must be sick of the sound of me saying it um i'd love them to do a front engine two plus two i'd love them to do for want of a better phrase a sort of you know their their take on a 911 turbo s um you know a car which you can which does have at least occasional rear seats um and you know they've you know let's not forget we know that they've got their v6 hybrid um coming up and you know know, who knows what that's going to be like but yes i think absolutely you know mclaren you know if if aston martin can be accused of having to spread itself too thinly in terms of all the different things it's tried to do from you know mid-engine hypercars to suvs and you know and everything else in between uh, i think mclaren um is perceived and probably you know with some justification as having gone absolutely too far the other way uh, and that people feel that when they get a new McLaren, despite how well engineered they are, and and actually how different so you know, many of them are, and certainly how different that they that they can feel, you are still getting um, variations on the same recipe. And I think absolutely now that McLaren has been making cars for ten years, um, now that obviously it has some significant issues which um, you know need to be addressed, um, I think it needs to find. I don't think it needs to stop doing what it's doing. I think it needs to do something else as well. Not an SUV. Ah, yeah, I completely agree with you there. Well, let's, let's leave that one there. Um, well, yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Um, and please, as ever, please remember to subscribe to the podcast, uh, leave a, a review for us. That really does help. Um, and just thank you for, for listening in, for your continued support. And we'll make sure uh, we talk to you again next week. Um, Andrew, thank you for all your insight into those two amazing cars. It was. Can, can I just say one more thing about go the McLaren? On. Um, oh, go on, go on. Uh, just that um, the other thing that we have to remember now is McLaren uh, very shortly its new um, carbon manufacturing facility in Sheffield will be coming online and so you know up until now they've had to um, get all their tubs from somewhere else they can now um, make their own tubs so hopefully that will give them the flexibility to do something that they've not been able to do until now and on that note I will shut up (laughs) okay well we've bust the one hour mark for the first time on our podcast but I think given that we were talking about the Ferrari SF9 Stradale and the McLaren Speedtail that's justified uh, so uh, well thank you everybody and Andrew thank you as well uh, it's been a great pleasure um, really enjoyed it um, and we will do it all again this time next week no it won't be this time next week because we're going to be out we'll be back on, a, on our Tuesday publishing day as, as usual that's right thank you everyone and goodbye The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel 